Thank you for listening to the Waterstone Community Church podcast. We hope you're enjoying God's word proclaimed. We are a growing movement of transformed people, reshaping the culture to reflect God's heart. If you'd like to know more about Waterstone or to find out about our service times, please visit us at waterstonechurch.org. This morning, our congregational prayer is triggered by an anniversary that we mark this time of year. I want to read a couple of comments, and then we'll pray together. Today, we call attention to January 22nd, the anniversary of the Roe v. Wade decision to legalize abortion in America. We believe that God has called and committed us to valuing and working to save human life, all human life. We believe that all human beings at any and every stage of life in any and every state of consciousness or self-awareness, or any and every race, color, ethnicity, level of intelligence, religion, language, gender, character, behavior, physical ability, disability, potential, class, and social status, are to be perceived as persons made in the image of God of equal and immeasurable worth and inviolable dignity and therefore must be treated in a manner commensurate with this moral status. Womb life is human life and human life bears the image of God and receives the love of God. While we may agree that we have the right to control our own bodies, Implicit in this right is the responsibility to control our bodies in such a way as to avoid dealing irresponsibly or violently with other lives. So, even if the womb-bound human being is unwanted, hated, we must love our enemies, as Jesus said. The only open door is tragic when the life of the mother is in jeopardy. That decision is the mother's or the family's before God. It is estimated that every day in our world, 4,000 human lives are taken through abortion. Over one million lives every year. Over the last three decades in the United States alone, we are witness and party to the greatest holocaust in the history of the world. Our posture of resistance and transformation takes two forms. First, we lament. Lament is the angry, grieving demand that God take notice and engage this tragedy. 
It is good for our lament to be public, though we resist resistance that makes the issue a mere political platform or a voice of hatred and condemnation. Second, we live out the gospel. We proclaim God's kingdom. We support pregnancy centers and abstinence education that walk alongside women and the baby's fathers. And we help women who have had abortions walk in forgiveness and freedom. Now, let us pray. Lord Jesus, the only begotten Son of the Father, source of life and of salvation, we pray to you in this moment. We lament the loss of life through the act of abortion. And we acknowledge that each life is a miracle, a gift you have given. Each life is your wonderful creation. We believe that you will care for every life that has been killed. But we are so sorry. We pray for those who have chosen abortion and for those in the process of making a choice. For these for whom abortion is a part of their story, we pray for your grace. Many suffer from continuing guilt and they replay their decision. For these, we ask for help and for healing. We lift up the women and men who this day are feeling desperate as if they need to choose the lesser of two evils when it comes to the situation of an unplanned pregnancy. We pray that they can see your great mercy, feel your powerful love, and hear your promise of help and hope and choose life. And for the friends and mothers, fathers, counselors, doctors, physicians, nurses, pastors, all who are walking alongside those making these decisions, we pray for your wisdom to seep into their words. Continue to hold them up as resources of mercy and perspective, turning hurting souls toward you and your unfailing love and power. And it's in that power, the name of Jesus, that we pray. Amen. Year of our Lord. January 2019, we proclaim the year of neighboring. Let's begin with a quote today. I'll read it, you absorb it. I think perhaps we want a more conscious life. We're tired of drudging and sleeping and dying. We're tired of seeing just a few people able to be individualists. We're 
tired of always deferring hope till the next generation. We're tired of hearing politicians and pastors and cautious reformers coax us, be calm, be patient, wait. We have the plans for a utopia already made, just wiser than you. For 10,000 years they've said that. We want our utopia now, and we're going to try our hands at it. That's written by a man named Sinclair Lewis. It's from his book, Main Street. Sinclair Lewis was the first American to win a Nobel Prize for literature. Yet, for all his fame and fortune, Sinclair Lewis died alone, an alcoholic in Rome. His body was cremated. It was taken to the United States Embassy for shipment back to the U.S., A report hit the papers in those days that a visitor visiting the U.S. Embassy in Rome was walking down a hall and a woman was on one knee with dustpan and broom sweeping up what looked like broken pottery. The visitor asked the woman what she was doing and she replied, sweeping up Sinclair Lewis. There's a medical theory that at the point of death, the human body loses 21 grams of mass. That's five nickels. It's the weight of a hummingbird. Perhaps it's the weight of the human soul. But maybe the better question to ask is, not what does a human soul weigh, but what gives weight to the human soul? What makes life matter. Now I look out over the room, I know many of you, I suspect that sitting here today there are no people who've won a Nobel Prize for Literature. No one that's graced the cover of Sports Illustrated. No one who's been asked to give a 20-minute TED Talk on a trending new nonprofit. No one who's had a second-row seat at a presidential inauguration. Forgive me, but what I see is a room of ordinary people asking the question, what makes life count? Yet, it would be a sweeping mistake in our 21-gram pursuit to equate ordinary with insignificant. The reason is because we are part of the mission. Here's the mission. To advance God's kingdom to God's glory, here's the text where this mission comes from. It's in Matthew chapter 28, verses 16 to 20. Then the 11 disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain where Jesus had told them to go. When they saw him, they worshiped him, but some doubted. If I could just interject, this is not really germane to where we're going today, but aren't you really, really relieved that the 11 who were standing there could not fit a resurrected Jesus into their paradigm? 
They worshiped and they hesitated. And I don't know about you, but that's strangely comforting to me because I have hesitated and often do. Let me say something else that's interesting. This is free. Isn't it interesting that the 11 who launched the church were portrayed in such a negative light? You would think if this was a myth that people were trying to make up and spread throughout the world that they would make the original founders look much better. I don't know. I find that strangely comforting. You be the judge. Then Jesus came to them and said, here's the mission. Here's the 21 grams. You ready? All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. Today, no homiletical hocus pocus. We're gonna just go straight to the text and walk through it. At the end of it, I wanna come back then and ask how the mission's going for you. The mission, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. The mission starts with a mission commander who is, what shall we say, very strong. Jesus alone conquered the world, all powers, by his death on the cross, the scripture says, he disarmed Satan, all other gods, and anything or anyone that could separate us from the love of the Father. Jesus disarmed them on the cross. And then, three days later, walked out of his own grave, which means he destroyed our greatest enemy, death. Therefore, Jesus has all power, listen, all social power, all political power, all physical power, all philosophical power, all power is in his hands and under his control. Jesus is king. He has won. He rules. And his rule is advancing all around us we can't even see it. It's like electricity in the walls. But the power is there. And history is churning towards his goals and his ends. Jesus is king. And the king says, go. You know, we like to say at Waterstone, our vision is to be a growing movement of transformed people reshaping the culture to reflect God's heart. It may be more accurate to say we are to be a going movement of transformed people. Christianity is a going religion. Go. It's assumed. We're always going. We're going out everywhere. Going, going, going. Now, 
we know the reason. We know the, how the logic works. I mean, if, what if a friend came up to you and said, uh, I need a job? Uh, I, I really do. Can you help me? And your advice to them, what would you think of this advice if you said to them, well, for a job, what I think you need to do is sit by the phone, sit in front of your computer, and just wait till a Fortune 500 company realizes they need uh, you in a position and they call you. What would you think of that advice? <laughs> but so often, it seems that's how we operate. We're just going to come here and have our little huddle and hope people walk through the door. No. We are to be a going movement. You know, they've done studies on the Christian church that when an adult becomes a believer, within three to four years of becoming a believer, they no longer have any unbelieving friends. Now, we can understand that. I mean, sometimes your greatest strength is your greatest weakness. This is a great place to find friends. You all are really good people. We love hanging out together. Sometimes, though, our greatest strength is our greatest weakness. And so one of the things we must keep in our minds is that word go. We should be developing, cultivating friendships, true friendships, with people who are not yet followers of Jesus. So, I mean, most of us in the room could say that every day at work, I'm around them. But my question to you is, yeah, but are you thinking about cultivating friendships with unbelievers so that they can see Jesus in you? I mean, you're, you're surrounded by them, but are you really engaging with a mindset of going and showing Jesus. Others of us need to be always putting ourselves in environments where we're surrounded by people who do not yet know Jesus. One of the reasons I serve on a board that I serve on here in Jefferson County. I mean, obviously I wanted to do common good and add value to our county, but even more, I reached a point being a pastor where I'm surrounded by you people all the time. That's not good. We all need to be thinking strategy of going. I'll never forget years ago, Nick Lillo uh, was preaching on the passage about uh, where Jesus calls Peter and Andrew and he says, uh, he calls them from fishing and he said, I'm going to make you now fishers of people. And Nick that morning said, uh, you know, I'm going to let you in on the secret of fishing. Many of you, you know Nick, he's, he's not an average fisherman. He has caught trout whales from New Zealand to Netherlands. He's been all over the world fly fishing. He's pretty good. So that morning he does, you know, the old Dead Poets movie thing. Students, students, come in, come in. I'm going to share with you this secret. Now, you can't tell anybody if it gets out, there'll be no fish left. Here's the secret to fishing. Fish where there's fish. Fish where there's fish. Go. Go into all the world, it says. All the world. But I don't like that nation. I don't like those people. I don't like that country. All the world. Every nation. 
Christianity has always been missionary at heart. All nations. It's been that way since the beginning, since God called Abraham and Israel was to be a light to the nations. The mission of God has always been for God's people to be a light to the world, all nations showing them the way to God. Now, we're very careful, and missionary uh, efforts and movements over the years have made dreadful mistakes when we try to force our Western culture on people, when we try to force our Western government on people, when we try to force our Western lifestyle on people. No, no. But what every worldview outside of Christianity is missing is whom? Jesus. And so we take Jesus to every nation. No one has captured this better than the late Leslie Newbegin, who was a missiologist and sociologist in England. He said, it's a long quote, hang with it, but there's no better way to put it. When, what, whatever may or may not have been the sins of our missionary predecessors, the commission to disciple all the nations stands at the center of the church's mandate. And a church that forgets this or marginalizes it, forfeits the right to the titles Catholic, which means worldwide, and apostolic. The truth is that the gospel escapes domestication, retains its proper strangeness, its power to question us, only when we are faithful to its universal, supernatural, supercultural nature. The contemporary embarrassment about the missionary movement of the 18th century, he was giving a speech on the massive missionary movements of the 1800s, is not, as we like to think, evidence that we have become more humble. It is, I fear, much more clearly evidence of a shift in belief. It's the evidence that we are less ready to affirm the uniqueness, the centrality, the decisiveness of Jesus Christ as universal Lord and Savior, the way by following whom the world is to find its true goal, the truth by which every other claim to truth is to be tested, and life in whom alone is life in its fullness to be found. We take Jesus to all nations. Can I suggest a new Sunday morning habit to you this morning? It's become a little practical. What if you, this is gonna be hard for you. I know it'd be hard for me. But before you get your coffee out there, what if instead of turning right to the coffee, you turn left? And did you know we have our missionaries over there in that table area? There's pictures of them and there's clocks for where each of them live in their time zone. What if before you got your coffee and donuts, you turned left first and just walked by those areas, waved your hand in front of them and said, Jesus, favor them. Family health, their work, give fruit to their labors, favor and fruit over our missionaries who are taking the gospel to the nations for Waterstone. Would you be willing to do that? Just to walk by prayer, a drive through the Waterstone coffee area. Get to know our missionaries, see where they're serving, see where the gospel is impacting around the world. Go, all nations, it's, it's global, but it's also local. We're also to go across our street, which is arguably an even harder walk for many of us. Across the street, 
You know, I've heard things around Waterstone, how hard that is. I've heard affluent people at Waterstone say, well, if those people begging at the corner of bowls there on Walmart, if they would just get off their butt and get a job, we wouldn't have to carry them. I've heard that. I've heard white people say they have no use for minorities. I've heard minorities returned in kind. I've heard men say they have no use for women. I've heard women return in kind. I've heard Democrats say they have no use for Republicans. Republicans return in kind. Do you know I'm convinced of something? The more we mature in Christ, the more we move from the extremes to the middle. And we begin to see that in this world, outside of what God says, that when you encounter people, it's not so much right and wrong. It's not so much white hat and black hat. We're all a bit gray. Everyone we know will disappoint us. Everyone we know struggles and hesitates when it comes to God. Every, everyone we know is a shade of gray. And you know how that maturity comes. It's when we come and stand at the foot of the cross. And then we look out at every person, ones we know, ones near us. We look at them and say, from the cross, yeah, I see you. You were as bad off as I used to be before I met Jesus at the cross. You see, what the cross does is it moves us to the middle if we're on the extreme. And if we're in the middle and apathetic and lazy and doing nothing, it moves us to an extreme. And we're in there, Jesus moving us where we need to go. Go into all nations and what? Make disciples. What does it mean to make a disciple? Well, a disciple is an apprentice who makes a personal attachment to a master. We often think of the classroom and curriculum and lectures, but that's not the word, the way of discipleship. Picture a a wood shop where you're shoulder to shoulder with the master carpenter. And he's not only showing you the skills, you know, measure twice, cut once, but even more, he's showing you a lifestyle and welcoming you into his way. And that is what a follower of Jesus is, an apprentice of the master. We are disciples who hold the master, Jesus, to be the most important person. We hold him as the one who defines reality. We hold him as the one who has the keys to heaven and hell. We hold him as the one who, who, in whom all the fullness of God dwells. We hold him as the one who upholds the universe by the word of his power. We uphold him as the one who is the fountain of forgiveness. We uphold him as the one through resurrection who is the promise of eternal life. We uphold him as the way, the door, the life, the light, the shepherd, and our refuge in relationship. Therefore, We think like Jesus. We act like Jesus. We trust him for what he gives and what he takes away. And we obey him so that we demonstrate his values to a watching world 
and tell them his story. And we are with him for that reason. We are disciples. And the result of that, as people watch us live that out, is some people are intrigued and what's assumed in the text is that some are gonna respond. And so we do two things, baptize. A good dunk, immersion, buried with Christ, sins forgiven, raised to new life, a new creation, baptism. Baptism is a way to mark a follower of Jesus Christ and count them among the followers. It's a new identity, a new creation, part of God's kingdom, and it's a new family. Did you notice? Baptized in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. That's the new family. Now, some of you are probably sitting out there, some of you may not have been baptized yet, but you would call yourself a follower of Jesus. I want to stress to you this morning how important it is to be baptized. You say, what's so big about getting wet? Well, it's the symbol. It's what it means. It's it's an initiation ceremony. I've compared it in the past to marriage vows. I'll be sitting in my office at times with couples who are living together, and a number of times I've had them say, what's the big deal about a marriage ceremony, about a marriage? It's just a piece of paper. Now, first thing that happens is they push one of my buttons, and so they, you know, strap up. We're going to talk about this. This It's a half-hour lecture coming. It's not just a piece of paper. It's a vow. And what holds a relationship together ultimately is character on both parties, character. Character that forges vows. Now, on the first day when you make those vows, yeah, you may not need them. (laughs) But day two, you'll need them. It's rough. Marriage is rough. I mean, there's nothing better than marriage and there's nothing harder than marriage. And most days, what will keep you married is your vows. Romance, mm, 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 mm. Physical beauty, mm, 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 mm. (laughs) You know? Some of that stuff just doesn't last. Now, you know, I don't want to, I know some old married couples who walk around with smiles on their face, and it just makes you wonder what they're up to as a married couple. It gets really good. My point is this, it's not just a piece of paper, it's vows made in the presence of God that you will bring your character to play in how they're lived out. It's big and it can keep you married. Well, what vows are to marriage, baptism is to the Christian faith, it's to our relationship with Jesus. You are literally in the water, you're going to be immersed in a symbol, Jesus died for me, Jesus rose for me, I'm identified by him and I'm part of his family and the thinking is in sickness and in health for richer for poorer till death brings us together that's the significance of baptism and any of you who have not been baptized but have called yourself a follower of Jesus I'm at what are you waiting for it's an initiatory ceremony you should do it next week and if you want to we will it's a way for Jesus to settle deeply into your heart. Now, over the years, I've told you some funny stories about weddings I've been to where I've seen bridesmaids and groomsmen drop at very interesting times at wedding ceremonies. 
I've told you stories about funerals where I've had to break up fist fights. Funerals bring out the best and the worst in families. I've never told you my favorite baptism moment. Here it is. It's back when I was pastoring in New England. By the way, I don't like to brag, but uh, in New England, I had the biggest baptistry in the world. It even had a name. It's called the Atlantic Ocean. And uh, <laughs> we were out there. Did, by the way, in New England, we ran the Alpha Court eight, course eight times, and we saw 40 adults make professions of faith in Christ. We dunked them in the Atlantic Ocean. That's why I'm sold on Alpha, folks. I've seen it. I've experienced it. Alpha, the story of Jesus. It's not rocket science. It's food and Jesus' story and a, and a small group. It works. Anyhow, so we're baptizing this, this uh, 20-something named Brian. He'd come to faith in Alpha. Now, here's the thing. If you've ever been to the New England coast, you know that the waves break very close to shore. So the tricky part about baptizing is you have to get out far enough to get up to your waist, but when a wave comes, it's already screaming toward you and can knock you over even though you're up in your waist. So when you baptize in that baptistry, you have to time it between waves. So baptizing Brian, sometime during the Alpha Course, someone exposed him to a Christian rock group called... um, I always want to say run DMC. It's not run DMC. Jesus freak. DC talk. Thank you. Uh, If I'm anything, I'm current. I don't know. Uh, Have you heard that song, Jesus freak by DC talk? What will people think if they hear that I'm a Jesus freak? What will people do when they find that it's true? Oh, oh. We're standing out there. You know, low 60 degree water, ankles numb. And Brian, you know, when we baptize people, we always give them the mic and say, what do you want to say? He sings the whole song. So I'm, you know, and no one else can hear. Everyone's else on the beach. The wind and wave, they can't hear him. It's just him and I and Jesus. And he's singing and I'm trying to watch the wave so it doesn't knock us over. Finally, he finishes the song. I ask him the questions, will you follow Jesus the rest of your life, and uh, have you received him as your Lord and Savior? And then I raise my hand, and I go, I baptize you, and (laughs) boom, we are doing cartwheels in Cape Cod, Massachusetts, and uh, you know the miracle was that my glasses stayed on my nose. We get back up. And I, I look at Brian, you know, everyone in the coast is yelling at us, are you okay? Everything. We get back up and I go, where was I? And Brian goes, the family, the family. So I assume he had his parents there and some extended family. I thought he wanted us to move in closer to the shore so that they could, you know, see us and hear us more. And he says, no, no, my new family, Father, Son, Holy Ghost, that's where you were. That's baptism. That's baptism. Our new family. Baptize them and teach them. Teaching is uh, what's implied in the word, as we've talked about being an apprentice. It's, It's what are you doing in your life? We call it the transform rhythm here at Waterstone. But what are you doing to pursue Jesus? You remember in Chronicles of Narnia, the Prince Caspian book, there's this time when Aslan and Lucy are in the meadow. 
And it's been a while since Lucy's been in Narnia. And she walks up to Aslan and Aslan says, welcome, child. And Lucy says, Aslan, you're bigger. And Aslan says, uh, no, child, I, I, I'm not. You're older. And, As, and Lucy says, you're not bigger then? And Aslan says, no, child, but the more you grow, the bigger I become. What are you doing in your practices, your routines, that is focused on Jesus such that he's becoming bigger to you? Let me suggest a couple of things. First of all, we have this amazing small group series coming up, The Way of the King. We've, there's uh, brochures out there you can get. You can stop out and talk to Jesse in the hub, get into a small group. The, it's the study on the Beatitudes. The Beatitudes are arguably Jesus' most famous teaching, but they are powerful countercultural ways in which followers of Jesus live. And this is definitely a preaching series that should be experienced in a small group to help it just settle in your heart more deeply, to be experienced with other followers and seekers of Jesus Christ. Get into a small group this winter. Experience it with other believers. Serve other believers. That's for the, really the primary reason we ask you to get into a group. It's not for what you'll get out of it, but what you bring to it. And we want you influencing other believers, helping us all grow to be more like Jesus. So sign up for a small group. Also, you receive today, I don't know if it's on the way in or the way out, but our winner brochure, there's a lot of opportunities for you to have Jesus grow bigger in your life. As he grows bigger, you'll neighbor more and more and more. Next week, we're gonna talk about more of what neighboring means, about praying, engaging, and inviting. That'll be next week. Let me finish this time with the promise at the end of this mission. Lo, it says, or yes, or listen. I, and it's an emphatic I. In the Greek sentence, the I is before the verb, which is unusual in Greek. It's, it's emphasizing I, Jesus, living in you by the Spirit. I am with you. You've never walked into a situation where I am not with you. I am with you till I tie up all the loose ends of history and return again. I am with you. All authority, all the time, as you carry out this mission. You know, let that sink in a little bit with you, that Jesus is always with you. I've, over the years, done a lot of hospital visiting, and uh, I had a mentor named Eugene Peterson, and uh, Eugene had this practice that he shared with a bunch of us once, where he said that the resurrection sits so powerfully with him that he would call it practicing resurrection. We all need to practice resurrection in our life. And for him, one of the things that meant is that when he would do a hospital visit, he would actually quote the words of the angel to the women. Remember the angel said to them, he's not here, he's risen. He went to Galilee, there you'll find him. So now, when Eugene would drive to make a hospital visit, and, and I do this practice still today, I'm driving, it's usually a very hard and difficult situation, I am practicing resurrection. Jesus, I know that you're at Swedish Hospital in room 202. There I will find you, just as you said. 
So what situation are you walking into this week? A difficult conversation at work? A doctor's visit? A family discussion? What? What? Here's the truth. He is risen. There you will find him, just as he said. And when we neighbor, when we want to invite someone to Alpha, he's already there preparing that conversation. Lo, I am with you always to the end of the age. So we end with this quote. Mission, what gives weight to the human soul? 21 grams. Here it is. They're trying to find it through a nice little job and a nice little marriage, two nice little kids, a nice little boy and a nice little girl, a nice little retirement plan, a nice little house with a nice little two-car garage and a nice little car in each half of it. Nice little place to go in the summer if you prefer a nice little place in the winter. But you know what the end of that story is? It's a nice little hill with a nice little mound on it and a nice little stone on the mound with your name and a few dates underneath. You know what will have happened? You will have lost yourself in mediocrity when we could have found ourselves in fulfillment and immortality. Jesus says to Waterstone, all authority has been given to me. Therefore, go, make disciples of all nations, baptize them, teach them all the things I've taught you, and listen, I'm with you always until I come back and tie up all the loose ends. Go. Let's stand, let's proclaim it together, the mission 